Thank you, ladies. Appreciate that offering to the Lord. Helps us be in the presence of God and meditate on Him. I like the way that um, there were no words spoken, but we know the words to that hymn, so it draws us right in to the presence of God. Appreciate that. Very blessed to have the people that God has sent to our church to serve us in that way. Well, we are in the gospel of... Can you guess? All right. We've been in there all year. Good job. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're in chapter 5 this morning. And the message of Matthew, and each gospel has its own message, but the main message in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is king. And this king in chapter 5 is on a hillside or a mountainside, and he has followers, and he is preaching a sermon about his kingdom. And we looked at the Beatitudes, which would could be considered the norms of the kingdom. What's it like? He's giving us an idea of what it's like for a person to live in the kingdom. What is that kind of person like, a kingdom person? Then also, he shared with us in his sermon the witness of the kingdom, and that is that kingdom people are God's salt. Kingdom people are God's light in the world. That is their role. That is the purpose that they serve in their redemption. The Jews, as you know, are a very law-centered people. And so I can imagine that as they are listening to this sermon by Jesus the King, that they could have been wondering, when is he going to start talking about the law? Because that's what the Jews' lives center around. And... They, they were probably wondering when he's going to talk about sacrifices, the tithes, the offerings, the keeping the Sabbath, because that, that's what they're used to hearing. But Jesus has repetitively just talked about the heart and the inner man, and he hasn't really touched on the law yet. But in the passage that we look at this morning, Jesus does address this topic of the law. And we're going to we're going to get a glimpse into exactly How Jesus thinks about the law. How does he handle the law? What does he believe about the law? And in doing so, we will learn how to apply it into our own lives. History also shows us that there was a group of people at that time, a small group of people that believed that when the Messiah came, Jewish people, by the way, that when the Messiah came, that he would do away with all this Law stuff. So with that in mind, let's look at verses 17 through 20. Jesus says in this sermon, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into or never enter the kingdom of heaven. The three things or points I want to examine this morning are the permanence of God's word, the permanence or the purpose of the Bible, and then the power of 
the Bible. Permanence. What does it mean to be permanent? Is God's word, the Bible that we hold in our hands or perhaps in your electronic device this morning? Are those words, is that Bible fixed? Is it authoritative? Authoritative? Is it unchanging? It's a, a standard that is immovable. Or are they a compilation of words that change according to times? That change perhaps according to culture? Is God's word something that can be changed according to how we feel about it or how we think it ought to, or how what we think it ought to say based on our own perception? Does God's word change according to people's or culture's ability to obey it? Does God look with pity at some groups of people and say, there's no way you can keep all of these commands. I give you two to keep. However, you are a more moral people. You keep all ten. How do we perceive this? What is God's word to us and what is its purpose in the world? Is it a book of suggestions or binding commandments? While we're thinking about that and considering that, consider this. It was around in the early 80s when legal scholars, judges and professors began to kind of see the writing on the wall regarding our law, Western civilization, but in, in particular, American law. They were beginning to see that law in our civilization as we know it would soon be doomed. And the reason they began... These articles began to be published with words like that was because they were beginning to see that our culture, the people in our culture no longer believed in God, no longer believed, therefore, in God's word and therefore no longer believed in absolute truth or absolute standards and gauges. So. They saw the writing on the wall when there's no fixed standard by which all men are to come under and conform to. That what we're left with is man making up his own laws, man creating his own sense of right and wrong and morality. Man writing his own laws. And they called that, of course, existential relativism, mean. I'm making up my own truth based on what I think it ought to be and based on my experience. And yes, of course, it can change. It's relative because if there is no standard of right and wrong, then you're not really changing anything that was ever fixed to begin with. So they began to see this, this danger and this threat to civilization as we know it here in America. And it's a tendency to change the rules of life according to the life I live or the life I want to live. Or the life I think I deserve. Professor by the name of Thomas Frank from New York University wrote, Law has become undisguisedly a pragmatic human process. It is made by man and it lays no claim to divine origin or eternal validity. Law is now characterized by existential relativism. Indeed, it is now generally recognized that no judicial decision is ever final. 
that the law follows the event is not eternal or certain, is made by man and is not divine or true. Well, what's the problem with a law that's wiggly, if you will, that you can't nail down, that, that changes? He says, if law is merely an experiment and if judicial decisions are merely hunches, why should individuals or groups or people observe these legal rules or commands if they do not conform to their own interests? These scholars that began to write articles like that, they're, they're not, they don't come from necessarily a Christian background. They're just using their brains to deduce what was common sense. And I agree with their conclusions that without an absolute fixed standard of things, we are left on our own to make our own way, to make our own decisions, to label things right or wrong, depending on our own wisdom, because we're not depending on a wisdom that transcends us or someone that's smarter than us and has it all figured out, we're left to figure it out on our own. So no absolute standards, no absolute words, no absolute laws means there's no real law. And people are left to obey a law, I guess, that are based on judicial hunches, judicial feelings. This seems like the right thing to do at this point. Time. The philosopher said the same thing. Nietzsche and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky said the same thing about it and basically concluded, yes, if God doesn't exist, then it's just common sense that everything is permitted. And this is what we found written back in the 80s, a little bit before that and, of course, after. So what we're left with is if there is a God... And he has indeed, indeed revealed himself in the law, in his word. Then we are all obligated to obey it and to come under it. We have to do everything that it says for us to do. But if there is no God, then what we're left with is a matter of personal preference, personal taste. Of course, this is no surprise to you. If you just read, pick up any modern day magazine, look at any modern day commercial, any kind of movie, it's, it's our culture. Things are becoming the authority for things is my preference and my taste and don't dare cross me because that's un-American. And I have every right to think this way. And you have no grounds to try to pull some kind of standard that will trump that will transcend my thinking or my beliefs. That's the culture that we are living in. And really it's a culture that you can't, if you're going to be honest, you can't really talk about morality and immorality or right and wrong because we've thrown it out. You throw the standard with it out, you throw that out. So really we can only talk about tastes and preferences. There's either a morality or there is no morality. If he's there then we have to come under it. If not, everything is permitted. I think we see this in our culture. And as the Apostle Paul said, what in Romans 1, cultures can get to the point where what we once thought was right, now we think is wrong. And there are things that we once thought, well, that's wrong. Now we think, no, that's right. 
And even the moral pressures behind these things are felt in our culture. You feel the, well, we call, might, might call it peer pressure, cultural pressure to conform what the Bible would say to the world and its ways. It's a lot of pressure for us to conform to modern thinking of morality. And Paul says what happens is that we exchange truth, God's gift of truth, and, and we trade it in and, and we take a lie. It's that exchange, that sad exchange. So, just in my lifetime, as an example, very obvious example, when I was growing up, in my culture, and I'm not just talking about Christian culture, but for the most part, American culture, and backed by law, life was precious because we had Christian values. Life was precious. You, you don't take life. You don't play with life. You don't experiment with, with human life. You cherish it. And it was clearly wrong to do anything other than that. And then through time, that, that belief, of course, that came from the idea of being created in the image of God because a human being is a human being, no matter how big or small or no matter the appearance, no matter the age, that creature is in the image of God and therefore on that basis alone deserves the utmost respect and honor. That's a belief. That's a value. And then it began to change to where there are exceptions. There are times when, yes, we can murder and take a life and we can get into the whole abortion debate where now there is actually cultural pressure you have no right to have that baby it is morally wrong for you to have that baby under these circumstances how could you even think about bringing that baby into this world or we look at legalized euthanasia once once it becomes the written law legalized it's not long before it actually becomes a moral pressure so for the sick and elderly to have the right to end it all now becomes an obligation to end it all. And we have the, the thinking behind that now is that the elderly have a moral obligation to end it because you are taking up needed resources that our young people need to thrive. And it's just wrong. That's our culture. That's what I have to look forward to. I'm not getting any younger. Maybe somebody coming at me with a needle because I'm too weak to defend myself. Mr. Montagna, time's up. Who says time's up? We do. On what basis? Well, you popping, taking too many pills and too much medical attention. We need it elsewhere. You see how... Things can change. They're slippery. So is there a fixed standard or not? And what does the world look like? And there's different cultures that have different ways. What will, we be, what will we become? What could we possibly become without something to cling to? So that's kind of the point in introducing all this. Is there an absolute authority? It's, it, that's unchangeable. 
inviolable. Well, according to Jesus, there absolutely is. And that would be the word of God, God's law, the law and the prophets. That's the entire Old Testament, what we have in our Bibles. And he says it's it's so authoritative that what we possess that that not even a uh, not even a part of a letter is out of place or false or wrong, misplaced. Though in our, in our alphabet, of course, it would be like even the, the dot on the I and theirs it would be or or would say in our alphabet, uh, part of a letter. We're talking about a yacht or a, a iota. It's part of a letter. So when we write the letter G, we decide if we want it to be a G, the line goes this way. If we want that same circle up there to be a Q, the line goes this way. And he's saying all those lines, everything that make up these words, it is all absolutely inspired. And it's completely true down to the last dot, to, to the last part of the lines that make up the letters. That's Jesus's statement here about the Bible. The whole of it is inspired in our statement of faith. You've read it lately. We believe that God's word is infallible. We also use that word in plenary inspiration. That just means whole, complete in the original manuscripts. It is absolutely, positively complete and reliable down to the last little line. So that's Jesus's high view of Scripture, that's his theology of Scripture. It's as high as it possibly can get. It's divine book. These are divine words. They come from God. He says that they are so otherworldly, if you will, so divine that they will outlast heaven and earth. It's been around a long time. And we have a tendency to think it will always be here. And this is this is nature. And he's saying that this will transcend nature, meaning it's not natural, it's supernatural. It's divine. It comes from something outside of this world. It comes from God. And some hear this you know, bibliology, they hear this argument about Holy Scripture, and we might be tempted to ask a very good question and say, well, wait a minute, I get the fact that Okay, if God spoke it, yes, we can rely upon it. But aren't you forgetting the process of Holy Scriptures? Aren't you forgetting that it was just man that collected these writings that were identified as from God? And wasn't it man that identified these writings from God? And if it was man, then isn't it possible that a mistake was made and maybe... Things were left out or maybe some things were added that were not supposed to be in there. And that's a good, valid question. And yes, humans did put it together. And yes, humans wrote it as inspired by God. They penned it. They spoke it. And you have the canonical process of putting it all together and deciding, yes, this is the word of God. And no, that's not. We can't have this in the canon. The standard doesn't meet the standards. What Jesus is saying here, of course, this is in the, in the days of Christ when the Old Testament was already canonized. He's saying that process, 
the whole process that man went through was providentially inspired by God. And so that what you have, even though man played a part in it, was so directed by God that the final result is perfection. That's Jesus' belief. That's Jesus' view of Holy Scripture. And he has no problem with that. So, in other words, whatever Scripture says, God says. That's what Jesus is telling us. Whatever Scripture says, God says. And Jesus didn't just believe that. He lived his life around it. He lived his life in it. Became of it. And thought, according to Scripture, believed, looked at the world, looked at other people through the lens of Holy Scripture. He absolutely relied on Scripture. He relied on what God's Word said. Of course, he's the main part of it. And that's point number two. But he really did entrust himself to it. That's how much he, he, he cared about it and let it frame who he was. And you think if there's ever a time in your life to kind of not trust in Scripture, to not rely on Scripture, it would have been when Jesus was dying on the cross in pain. You can't think straight and all that kind of pain. You might think this is the moment of weakness. You know, if you squeeze humanity hard enough, bad things will come out sooner or later. And if there was ever something bad or untruthful or unfaithful that would have come out of Jesus, it probably would have been at that point. Because he's forsaken by man and feeling the wrath and the separation of his heavenly father, which had never been felt before and experienced before in history. And so he's hanging on that cross in tremendous pain, facing death. And what's coming out of his mouth? Curses? Is he cursing man? Is he cursing God? He's quoting scripture. He's on the cross. He's dying. And he is literally quoting the words of God. The last saying, seven sayings of Christ. Or scripture. Psalm 22. He's quoting Psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or when he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Psalm 31, 5. His whole life is scripture lived out. He sees every event as according to the word of God. Unwavering trust in the veracity of the word. Let's think about what he had to say in his parable in Luke 16. Your very, very familiar parable. Some scholars even wonder, is this a parable or is this a true story? But I'm just going to come at it from the stance of a parable. And it is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Of course, the rich man has like a, a castle, if you will. Very, very wealthy man. And outside the gates of this castle is poor Lazarus. He's, he's a sickly man, a very poor man. The dogs are licking his sores. He has nothing. And the rich king or the rich man has pretty much everything and enjoys every bit of it. And they both die in this story. This parable. And the rich man goes down to hell. And he is facing the, the torments of hell. And, and he's obviously very uncomfortable. 
And so he looks up and he sees Father Abraham up in the heavens and he says, Father Abraham, it's unbearable down here. I had, in essence, had no idea. I mean, I, when I heard about hell and Hades, I thought, yeah, it'd be hot, but I know it'd be this hot. Can you please show me mercy? I am absolutely parched. Any little mercy, just, just this I ask of you. Could you have Lazarus just dip his finger in a cup of water and let the droplets come down so I, they can touch my tongue? I need something here. I am in torment. And Abraham uh, basically says, in, in my words, sorry, but there's a chasm and it's fixed between heaven and hell and no one can come up and no one can go down. Um, so you had your opportunity to be up here, you chose to be down there, and that's where you'll stay. And then the rich man says, well, then, putting words in his mouth, but this is what I would be thinking. Okay, that's true. I made my choices. I'm stuck here. No mercy for me, however. Abraham, I have five brothers. I have five brothers. And every one of them is living their life just like I did. Not for God. And everyone will wind up in the same place and I will have to suffer along with my brothers. And I can't bear that thought. Abraham, will you have mercy on me? And will you just send Lazarus to warn them, please, so they don't have to suffer the same fate? Now, listen closely at these are this is Jesus's words in Luke 16. Now I'm in verse 29. But Abraham said. Of course, to the rich man, they have the five brothers, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What is Jesus teaching about God's word there, Moses and the prophets? That God's word, as it is, stands more convincing than if a man would come back from the dead and speak God's word to you. It's the idea that as it is written, as it stands, it is incredibly powerful. You, you can't do anything else to it. It can't be any more convincing, in other words. You, you either believe it or you don't. It's what God has given to us to hear from him. It's absolutely reliable, absolutely convincing, foolproof. And there's no miraculous sign that can top it in and of itself. It has complete power as it is written. It's fully sufficient in and of itself. You either believe it or you don't. 
Well, obviously Jesus believed it. To this poor rich man, when you reject the word of God like that, when you reject the warnings of God that come to us throughout the life, our lives, you're cutting God's word out of your life. You're rejecting the words from heaven. You're rejecting the summons. You're rejecting the kind, gracious, merciful invitations to come unto him. To live for him, to let him free you, save you from your sins and free you from your sins. When you cut that out, when you reject that, or, or the word of God as written, or the word of God that comes to you through God's servants, friends, pastors, teachers, radio programs, you're cutting off the voice of heaven. There's nothing else for you to hear. There's nothing else to be sent. One of the things I love about the Reformed faith, and in our website you'll see New Covenant Fellowship essentially reformed in its doctrine, is the high view of Scripture. This is what God says. Believe it. It's reliable. It's true. It comes from God Almighty. Conform your lives to it. Cherish it. Take it in as deep as you can into your heart. It's precious. This high view of Scripture. Of course, we have some maybe that mean well, may not be Christian or maybe immature Christians or young Christians. And they they might read God's word and see some strict restrictions in there. I don't know about that. That's that's a little bit too hard. What do you mean? uh no sleeping with my girlfriend. That's too hard. And I don't have that conviction. I think as long as you're going to get married, it's okay. Human reasoning. Or others might read something in God's Word about God Himself or about the ferocious wrath of God and, and, and just say, well, that's not the God I love. That's not... My God, he wouldn't do anything like that. We're rejecting and failing to submit to God's written word from heaven to us. That's perfect. And it's not to be, as Revelation tells us, taken away from or added to. It's not listening to God's word. So when we do this, we're creating a false God. We're silencing. Talk about censorship, a big thing in our society. Should we censor God's word? Should we say, I'm willing to listen to your voice and let you be authoritative here, but not over here? Is that kingdom living? I mean, is all of God's word authoritative or just what we decide? You see how we exchange things and the slippery slope. And when we cut When we cut the means of communication and revelation off, we're cutting God's off. We're cutting God out of our life. We're not listening to him. And that's sad because it's through God's word that he reaches out to us, that he summons us in and invites us in. That he presents to us the offer to save us and change us and deliver us from our own misery. I like Paul in 116 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of 
everyone who believes. In and of itself, as it stands, he believed that he could go places and just speak God's word. And because it's God's word, things will happen. Things will change on earth and things will change in the heavens because that's the power of God's word. Jesus relies on this, shouldn't we? We, we, we exalt the name of Christ in our worship. That's what we're all about. We pray every morning on, in the pastor's study. We just want your name to be exalted in our praise. We want you to be exalted in our hearts. Jesus relies on the word of God, should not we? It's living, it's active. And when we read it, it reads us. And Jesus says it's all coming true. Because it is true. It's not any little area. You're not going to find a flaw in it. And there's nothing that will fail. Everything shall come to pass. It is true. And it's coming true. question is, are we on board or not? Do we believe it or not? And to what extent? The purpose of the Bible... So that's the permanence of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is that, of course, it points to Jesus. And he says, don't think in verse 17, I came to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. That word in the Greek is kataloo means uh, literally to fill it up, to make it whole. The illustration is given like we have a cup. You have an empty cup. And you fill that cup with a liquid. That cup is serving its purpose because it's an instrument that is used to serve the liquid. I guess the the contents of it. And Jesus takes the the form of the old covenant, which was made to hold him, if you will. And he fulfills it. He fills it up so that it can be served. Literally means to be filled and you need them both, really, because an empty cup, then you don't have the material. But in order to have material, you need the framework, you need the cup. And so that's the interchanging works or the dynamics between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't do without the Old Testament. It fulfills it. It uses it as will the tutor and so forth. It uses it to serve us Jesus. The Old Testament serves us Jesus and he comes and makes it whole and complete. And brings meaning and purpose to it. Because it's all about him. It's what you find out. It's all about Jesus Christ. And he helps us grasp it. Because he fulfilled it. It's no longer the same. It changes. And we aren't to look at it the same way. And according to the New Testament. Now we look at it. According to Christ. As I'll read in a second. We are to look at it Christocentrically. We are to look at it always expecting to see Jesus in there because that's the purpose and the meaning of all the laws, of all the sacrifices, of all the ceremonies. The clean laws. So we don't do those anymore because Jesus fulfilled them. They had a purpose. So now he is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the ultimate cleanliness. He's the one that purifies us. The presence of God in our hearts. He's the one that brings order. He's the one that transforms. He's the one that 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 prays on our behalf. He's the 
the ultimate priest, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king. It's all changed now because Christ fulfilled it. And that's how we want to understand it. Every story, every character in the story, Jonah, every character that we read about in the Old Testament finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. It's all about him, the ultimate him. So in Luke chapter 24, you're familiar with that, the road to Emmaus, verses 13 through 35. And Jesus, uh, after the resurrection, reappears and there are two disciples walking down the road. Of course, they're talking about all the things. And Jesus says at one point, how foolish are you and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Huh? They were not believing God's word in its entirety. They weren't grasping it. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The Bible's about me, basically, is what he's saying. It's all about me. Look, let me show you. There I am in Moses. Or, I mean, there I am in the, the Pentateuch, in the writings of Moses. There I am in this prophet. There I am in Jonah, Amos, Obadiah, Joel, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of them. There I am in this passage. That is me. And we will remain clueless if we do not read the Old Testament in light of the ministry of Christ and the work of Christ. Won't understand it. Even though we may believe in it authoritatively, we won't understand it properly and it will turn us into Pharisees. So we want to be careful as New Testament believers how we approach the Bible, which means we need to be careful about all the different teachings that circulate through the church in different seasons and times about how we need to get back to the Old Testament. How we need to get back to the law of God, because that's how we please God. We need to be careful about those and discerning about those kind of teachings. Christ fulfilled it. The object of worship hasn't changed. It's still God. The nature, the practice of worship has changed because Christ fulfilled the law. And then lastly, the power of the Bible in essence, it changes our life. The function of the Bible is to come inside of us, the new covenant, to be written in our hearts. Why? So that it will transform us forever and ever and ever and not stay on the outside. And that was the problem, of course, with the scribes and Pharisees. And we'll really see this in the upcoming sermons when Jesus starts to pick apart their understanding of the law. This is just scratching the service. But he says in 19, whoever relaxes one of these teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom. And then in 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's a threatening statement. We'll look at more later. But what did they do? What is Jesus saying? They obey the law externally. They turn it into a dutiful thing. And the law is something that is to come into your heart and grip it and transform you. The power of God's word. Now, they were very devoted, very disciplined, very impressive in how they could practice certain things. It's a little more complicated than that. And Jesus will explain that to us in the coming verses. This is what they believed. And they brought God's word low. Jesus just picks it back up to what its original intent is to be. Man's traditions, the traditions of the Pharisees, 
cut it and sliced it and diced it and made it meaningless. Really, tradition of man. They took God's rule and then they cut it into lots of little rules that were to be obeyed in an attempt to obey that one rule and in an attempt to make it manageable. You think, what are you talking about? Let me give you a good example of what they did and then we'll close. John MacArthur says, the Old Testament law had said that you couldn't work on the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, rest from your labors. They said, speaking of the scribes and therapies, uh, Pharisees, all right, if we can't work on the Sabbath, what is work? So they had to determine what work is and they decided to have a study on what work was. And they decided, first of all, that work is to carry a burden. So you couldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath. Then they said, what's a burden? Let's decide what a burden is. Scribal law put down a burden is food equal to the weight of a dried fig. Enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Milk enough for one swallow. Honey enough to put on a wound. Oil enough to... Oil enough to anoint... Oh, anoint. It's a typo there. To anoint a small member. Water enough to moisten an eye salve. Paper enough to write a customs house notice. Ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. Read enough to make the pen. So on, so on. All that stuff, that's the limit. Beyond anything that you broke the commandment because you did work that was considered a burden. They spent endless hours arguing whether or not a man could lift a lamp from one place to another on the Sabbath. Arguing about whether a tailor committed a sin if he walked out of the house with a needle still stuck in his robe. They had a big discussion of whether or not a woman could wear a brooch if it was too heavy, if it was a burden to carry. Dangle earrings. Big, heavy. Good reason for us not to buy our wives gold and diamonds. Big old heavy nuggets. We don't want to break the law. Whether she could put false hair on if it was too heavy, if it was a burden. Hey, I'm just reading what he wrote. Don't if it weighed more than a fig, they also had a big argument about whether a man could go out on the Sabbath with artificial teeth. Get the, uh, an artificial limb because it constituted a weight. Um, discussed if a man could lift his child on the Sabbath. Sorry, messy diaper. Gotta wait till tomorrow. <laughs> These things were the essence of religion to them. They decided also that to write was work on the Sabbath. Writing had to be defined, so they decided that he who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right or left hand whether of one kind or of two kinds, if they are written with different inks or in different languages, is guilty. Even if he should write two letters from, the, from forgetfulness, guilty. Whether, he was written, whether they were written in ink, pen, chalk, vitriol, or anything, etc. They also said that healing was a work. So obviously this had to be defined. Healing was allowed when there was... Danger to life, but even then you could only take steps to keep the patient from getting worse. No steps could be taken to make him get any better. So you could put a plain bandage on a wound, but no ointment. You could plain, you could put plain wadding in a sore ear, but not medicated wadding. The scribes were the people who wrote all this, and the Pharisees were the ones who tried to keep it. That's the traditions of men, what they were up against in that. So you see what the law became. So now when you say keep the Sabbath, this is what they're thinking. 
And Jesus is going to change all that. He's going to tell us what it really means. But what we want to close with this question. You know, are we hearing Jesus preach to us this morning? Are we hearing what God is gifting us with? The words that God is bringing to us as an act of mercy and grace? Are we thinking about our view of Scripture? How high is it? How low is it? How are we relating to the very Word of God that transcends the wisdom of man, the laws of man? Our own preferences, our own tastes, our own passions, our own desires, things that me way we may really want or think we deserve. Do we submit even those and trust? No, God's way is always best. Whose voice is the loudest to us? When we come and crack open Scripture to devote ourselves to it, do we sometimes hear what David heard from Nathan, from God's Word? You are the man or you are the woman. When we put our lives and our lifestyle and our actions up to the standard of God and we realize we've fallen short, or are we encouraged as we see that God promised this is how He will transform his children into Christ likeness and we are getting there we, we don't lie as much we don't deceive as much we don't get angry as much and our life is more peaceable because of it God's promise is being fulfilled in us where do we stand with the word of God do we see it like Jesus sees it let me close with this poem that I can't give credit to anybody because it just says unknown I find my Lord in the book wherever I chance to look. He's the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He's a rose of Sharon, the lily fair. Wherever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He at the book's beginning gave to the earth its form. He is the ark of shelter bearing the burnt brunt of the storm. He is the burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God, the ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window, and the serpent lifted high, the smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook, the face of my Lord I discover wherever I open the book. He is the seed of the woman, the Savior, virgin born. He's the son of David whom men rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and of beauty, the stately Aaron deck. Yet he is a priest forever, for he is Melchizedek. Lord of eternal glory, whom John the Apostle saw. Light of the golden city, lamb without spot or flaw. Bridegroom coming at midnight, for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open my Bible, I find... My Lord in the book. Have you found Jesus in the book? May God bless the preaching of his word.